0: There are a lot of mysteries about the brain, but one of the things that's really important to understand is that there are really core truths about the nervous system that are very well accepted. The stuff of textbooks that is true now and will be true 100 years from now.
1: Welcome to Longevity by Design, a podcast designed to give individuals access to the leading scientific information in the field of longevity. The ability to add years to your life and life to your years needs no opinion. Join us as we ask science to take the wheel. In each episode, Dr. Gil Blander joins a co-host and an industry expert in the field of longevity, shining a light and getting the answers to the key question, how can we live a longer, healthier life?
2: Hello, I'm Ashley Reaver and I am joined by Dr. Gil Blander. Welcome to Longevity by Design, How to Live a Longer, Healthier Life. We're produced by Inside Tracker, your science-based guide to optimizing your body from the inside out. Our guest today is Dr. Andrew Huberman. Dr. Huberman is a tenured professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford University School of Medicine. His laboratory studies neural regeneration, neuroplasticity, and brain states such as stress, focus, fear, and optimal performance. For more than 20 years, Dr. Huberman has consistently published original research findings and reviewed articles in top-level peer-reviewed journals. He's a regular member of several national institutes of health review panels and a fellow of the McKnight Foundation and the Pew Charitable Trusts. Dr. Huberman regularly consults for technology development companies, professional athletic organizations, and various units of the United States and Canadian Special Forces. The Huberman Lab podcast discusses neuroscience, how our brain and its connections with the organs of our body controls our perceptions, our behaviors, and our health. The podcast also discusses tools for measuring and changing how our nervous system works. Welcome. Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Delighted to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome, Andrew. Let's start with
3: uh, some basic. When did you know that you wanted to be a scientist?
0: Well, there's the the first moment of that and then a return to it later. But I was pretty young. I was six. And my father, who's a scientist, uh, was walking me to school. We used to walk to my kindergarten. Yeah, it was the transition between kindergarten and first grade. And... um, I basically would continue on the the sidewalk and he would take off down a path to his lab. And uh, he's a physicist at the time. He was an experimental physicist. And I remember just asking him what he did for work. I didn't have any concept of how he made a living and he explained it a little bit, but I didn't really understand. And then he said something, which was at the moment very impactful and is still embedded in my memory, which was, he said, you know, your birthday, right? I said, of course. And he said, well, you know, that the night before your birthday, how excited you get uh, i said yeah absolutely and he said well that's how i feel about my job every day and i thought wow okay so i said well i want to do what you do and he said no you don't want to do what i do I said by the time you're you're old enough uh, most of the great discoveries in physics will already be solved and there might be some additional things but you should pick something where there's a few less marks on the beach and i said okay well what what would those be and he said well, the, the brain is really interesting, we don't know that much about the brain. So I, I declared at that moment and we both remember this conversation. I said, well, then I'll figure out how the brain works, which of course I haven't done, but that was really it. And then life was uh, had a number of different events between age six and university, but it was really my second year in university that I took courses in at the time, what was called abnormal psychology, which is really diseases and disorders of the, the mind and the nervous system. And I started working in a lab studying thermal regulation, physiology, and how drugs of abuse would alter our perception of our temperature and this amazing interplay between the brain and the body and how they talk to one another. And then I just started living in the lab, basically. I I loved the lab. I loved doing experiments and various points in my career, including when I was a professor, I actually lived in my laboratory. There are times when I just figured, why go home? It's just so kind of a waste of time. I'll just shower at the gym and avoid the commute. And at uh, numerous times I've been removed from my own laboratory where they've told me, You need to this sends the wrong message. You you need to go home. <laughs>
3: <laughs> that shows that you love what you're doing. That's great. People need to do what they love doing because then you'll do it well. So I applaud you for that. Thank you so much yeah. for
0: the answers. I encourage healthy balance with work, but I don't always live that balance. But <laughs> these days more. But yeah, it was the right choice for me. And to me, a, a laboratory is just a, an incredible place to do, to explore things. So that's where I like to be.
2: Awesome. Well, walk us through your career path a bit from laboratory to where you are now, how you ended up with really a focus on aging. Um, And then also, you know, how you evolved to host this wonderful podcast as well.
0: Yeah, so I've worked on a number of different aspects of biology and neuroscience. I mean, technically, I'm a neuroscientist, study the nervous system. So as an undergraduate, I did my senior thesis looking at how particular drugs, including MDMA, which right now is of a lot of interest for its therapeutic uses for trauma and depression, mainly trauma. It's still an illegal drug in the United States as it was then. We were studying how it affects temperature regulation. I was also very interested in a a particular class of antipsychotic drugs and how they impact temperature regulation. These were what at the time were called atypical neuroleptics. Nowadays, they're more commonplace. Both drugs, MDMA and these atypical neuroleptics impact the dopamine system, but in opposite directions. Uh, you can get pretty substantial relief of certain symptoms of schizophrenia by suppressing dopamine and um, adding dopamine to the schizophrenic brain exacerbates those symptoms. And then drugs like MDMA provide enormous increases in dopamine as well as other neuromodulators. So that was really the focus as an undergraduate. And I loved it. I I really think that there are a lot of mysteries about the brain, but one of the things that's really important to understand is that there are really core truths about the nervous system that are very well accepted. The stuff of textbooks that is true now and will be true a hundred years from now, things like how we regulate temperature, how we regulate salt balance, how we perceive and see things at the level of, you know, how we take photons of light, convert those to electrical signals and that kind of thing. So that was my undergraduate years. And um, I was fortunate to work for a very talented physiologist and spend a lot of time in his lab. And then I went to graduate school at Berkeley, University of California, Berkeley. And there I was really interested in hormones and behavior. So I worked on how sleep and circadian rhythms and annual rhythms, what are called circannual rhythms, how those modulate levels of hormones in the brain and body, such as melatonin. And that was a, a lot of fun, learned a lot. And I got really interested in mapping anatomical circuits from the eye to the brain, just as a kind of factoid that everything that. Every cell in your body has a clock that runs on a 24-hour schedule. For instance, there are new data, really exciting new data that just came out, not from my lab, that show that our ability to utilize dietary proteins that we ingest is much greater early in the day because our liver and our muscles express clock genes, clock, b, mal, per, they have these names, they're clock genes. And so our protein utilization is much higher early in the day. And the protein we eat earlier in the day is converted into muscle much more readily than protein eaten later in the circadian day. And this is, yeah, very interesting data published in a very high quality journal, cell press journal. So the idea that you know a calorie is a calorie is is sort of true in the sense that energy expenditure and what you eat and how much energy you expend ultimately is the balance of maintaining weight, gaining weight, or losing weight. I think we should just acknowledge that truth. but, nutrient utilization shifts dramatically across the 24 hour schedule so much so that I have been up until now, I'm an early day faster. And then I tend to eat later in the day. I'm now shifted my eating window early on the basis of these results. Cause I like doing experiments on myself too, but okay. the results are really compelling, but I was really interested in how these clocks and how, those clocks affect hormones and how those hormones affect various aspects of our biology. At the time, I was really interested in reproductive biology, testosterone, estrogen, and how mating behavior and things like that changes across the year. And the other project I got very involved in is a very unusual one. The findings turned out to be very robust, which is how uh, exposure to hormones in utero while we were still fetuses, how that shapes different aspects of the nervous system and body. And there's this incredible effect of early exposure to testosterone in males and females by through the mother's body dictates a finger length ratio difference between individuals. There's a very consistent, it's a small but consistent and significant statistical effect on ratios of digits, and that result got a lot of press when it came out and was published in Nature, and it caught a lot. lot of kind of scant looks like, hey, wait, how could this be? But turns out there are a lot of effects of these hormones on the body plan and on the brain. And hormones are just a controversial topic. It's kind of funny. You talk about a neurotransmitter, everyone's fine with that. You talk about a hormone and everyone assumes that somehow, I don't know, we're getting into kind of tricky territory. And actually this study was really kind of cool because it showed that there are effects of these hormones that have nothing to do with behavior or psychology There are, of course, other effects that have to do with behavior psychology. That study has now been replicated no fewer than five times. There are other effects of early hormones that, for instance, on the tendency for the ears to make sounds, a subset of individuals make sounds with their ears, so-called autoacoustic emissions, and that is hormone dependent. Hormone dependent, meaning hormones that you were exposed to early in development. So that was my time at Berkeley. And then I fell in love with neural development. I took a course from the great Carla Schatz who is the person who coined the phrase fire together, wire together on the basis of her really critical work on how electrical activity in the nervous system shapes our brain and our nervous system. Her scientific parents, David Hubel and Torrance and Wiesel were given the Nobel prize for discovering critical periods of development. And I loved the topic and I, so much so that I went to Carla and said, I wanna work in your lab. I wanna leave the lab I'm in. I love my lab, but I wanna work on this stuff. And she said, well, I'm moving to Harvard So that's going to be tough to do, but there's this woman up the road named Barbara Chapman who just started her own lab and she's working on a lot of these things. I think that'd be a good place for you. And so I went and joined Barbara's lab and I spent four years working on critical periods and brain plasticity and how the visual system and other aspects of the nervous system wire up. And then the last stop before my own lab was I shifted focus again and I did a postdoc, which is like a five-year kind of internship it's sort of equivalent to like a residency internship in medicine, but I'm, I'm not a clinician. So it was in the lab. And I worked with a guy named Ben Barris, who he's dead now, unfortunately, but he really was the one responsible for creating this field of glial biology, popularizing glial biology. The brain is mostly glial cells. And they were always thought to just be support cells that don't do anything except passively enrich the lives of neurons. But it turns out that glia do a lot of things. Glia are the center point for a lot of neurologic diseases and psychiatric diseases. Ben was an MD and a PhD, and he really understood this from his clinical training. So all of a sudden I was exposed to things like microglia and astrocytes and all these uh, metabolic pathways and et cetera. But during that time, um, I started developing tools for using genetics to probe nervous system structure and function, mainly in the visual system. And when I moved to my own lab, which at first was at University of California, San Diego, and then eventually moved to my lab at Stanford, where I am now and been for some time. I've had my lab for 11 years now. We focused on how the visual system develops, how it changes across the lifespan, and ways to repair the damaged or diseased visual system. And then last but not least, in the about five years ago, I decided to add another aspect to my research program. So I have a lab, I have appointment in ophthalmology and appointment in neurobiology, And uh, the other aspect of my lab is we study humans and trying to understand how stress occurs in the nervous system. What is stress? What are stress mitigation tools? How can we deploy those tools? We study respiration and breathing, its effects on the body and mind. We study the visual system and its effects on stress. And we use things like VR, intracranial brain recordings in humans by collaborating with neurosurgery. And so that's a long arc there, but basically I've touched down into a lot of different things. And then- To make a long story short, I started putting posts up on Instagram in 2019, just teaching neuroscience to anyone who would care to listen. And then when 2020 hit, I realized that we had a public health crisis of stress and anxiety and sleep issues. And uh, while there's a lot of wonderful science in those areas, there's not a lot of science communication that's up to date. And so I decided to start blabbing about that stuff on the internet by going on podcasts and ramping up the Instagram frequency and that kind of thing. And then in 2021, decided to launch a podcast, which for lack of a better name has the same name as my laboratory, which is Huberman lab. And there we talk about anything science related health and fitness related on a backdrop of science, of course, and through mainly through the lens of neuroscience, but we touch into other things. And sometimes it's just me talking giving university style lectures. And then other times I bring on guests and interview them. People like David Sinclair from Harvard Medical School, people like Matthew Walker, a terrific sleep scientist from University of California, Berkeley. I've had several colleagues from Stanford on there and we have more coming soon. So I run a laboratory still I still have the Huberman lab, the actual lab. And then I do the podcast. And between those two things, pretty busy.
3: So Andrew, following on that, and I want to talk a bit about your podcast. So your podcast is very unique, at least the part that you are uh, basically lecturing on a, a specific subject. And I think that it's uh, very cool and, as I said, unique that uh, basically you you spend an hour and uh, talking about a specific subject. So how have you came to this concept and what brought you to do that?
0: Yeah, so a couple of things. Well, when I first started... As a university professor, I, I taught undergraduates. Now I teach medical students and graduate students mainly, a neuroanatomy course. But I had a course when I started off called Neural Circuits in Health and Disease. And we would do much of the same things that we do in the podcast. You just get up and start talking about a subject, delineate some of the core elements. What are the biological structures? How do they function? What do we know? What do we not know? And then place try and place it in a broader context and talk about some actionable items also, what people can do to deal with or better these systems for better sleep, focus, et cetera. So I knew I wanted to do that. The other things were I looked at the podcast space and I realized that there was a kind of a baked in flaw, which is that it's not archived very well. So for instance, if you tell me, oh, I heard a great podcast two years ago about attention deficit hyperactivity disorder on Pick Your Favorite podcast. I could go look that up, but the discoverability of podcasts is actually quite poor, right? It's very hard to discover unless you're already subscribing to a podcast and you're really careful about listening to each one. It's hard to discover something. It's not presented to you. So we knew we wanted to put it to YouTube as well, because YouTube tends to be better about archiving and presenting you things that it thinks you want to see. So that was one aspect. The other thing was. I want to provide some continuity. You know, one of the the challenges with podcasts in the science space is they're often a little bit schizophrenic, not in the clinical sense of the word, but it's like one day they're talking to some finance person. Then the next day they're talking to a longevity person. Then they're talking to an immunologist. It's kind of all over the place. So what we've done instead is to batch things where we'll spend a month, four podcasts, one per week, all on hormones, the endocrine system. So we'll talk about thyroid hormone, growth hormone. Then the next episode will be cortisol and adrenaline. Then the next one will be testosterone and estrogen and so on. And of course we can't exhaustively cover all aspects of a subject, but I feel that the mind and the brain learn best by deep context and not by skipping around too much. And so that was important. It was also frankly a little bit for myself so that I would have to learn and relearn some of the material in real depth. There's a kind of a forced learning that comes with staying on something like there are days when I'm sure my audience or I would love to skip to a discussion about some new thing that came out. and I might mention it, but I have to kind of hold off and really keep, just keep drilling in, which is a lot like science yeah, which is that you can't start you don't do new experiments haphazardly you do them because they're trying to lathe away at something. I suppose the, the last feature which was important to me, was that it have some sort of interactive component to it. You know, one of the challenges of the internet is that you're shouting back and forth through these tunnels of virtual space. And so the comment section on the podcast and the back and forth and some of the additional little snippets that we cover on Instagram are an opportunity for us to read comments and get ideas about, for instance, where people are confused, where people are excited, where people would like to hear more. And to make it somewhat interactive and so that's been a lot of fun you know i learn from people and what they would like to learn more of uh, about excuse me and so those are the general features and and i really i love it and i love that people are interested in learning about science i think 2020 changed everything right no matter where you right. sit politically or with respect to any of the stuff that's happening right now it's very clear that everyone is thinking about their health and well-being and their mental and physical health differently than they were prior to 2020. And the, the major message that's emerging from that is that no magic stork or fairy or superhero is going to arrive at your door and give you the kit of things that's going to make you healthy now and forever, that you we have to be proactive in taking care of our biology and our psychology, and that there's no program, no matter where you live in the world, that it, that would be well suited to that. And so people are now actively foraging for science and health information. And, um, you know, I feel very honored to be part of that effort of of trying to deliver the best information, not dogmatically. I really like to offer people behavioral tools, zero cost tools, behavioral tools. Certainly nutrition is important when and how much you eat and what you eat. And then supplementation obviously has a, a role for some, not all, but and then, of course, prescription drugs. I think people should just understand how they work and why they fail sometimes and why they work sometimes. And then uh, brain machine interface, measuring performance, sleep performance, focus performance, etc.
3: And so it's, it sounds like very similar to Insotracker. So it's great that you are doing that also i want to say that i listened to a couple of your uh, podcasts recently and i want to say that those are the best podcasts that i heard they are very scientific so uh, scientists like me can enjoy but also they are very simple that uh, i think that the average person can understand and uh, all of that is back in science so i really appreciate it and uh, congrats for uh, your you. success
0: thank you gil that's uh, very gratifying to hear i do strive to strike a balance between technical detail and accessibility. there will always be people who want more detail and those who want less detail, people who just want to be told what to do up front. Yeah. But my argument for the just tell me what to do is that first of all, I believe if you understand mechanism, you're in a much better place to make informed decisions. Yeah. And the second thing is that if it were simply a case of putting up you know the five best ways to beat stress or something, then there are millions of, in- of videos like that on the internet. It's the difference between understanding a little bit of some of the chemistry of food reactions versus just following great recipes. You can follow recipes and go pretty far, but it gives you zero flexibility. When you understand why you include salt at a particular step in a recipe, then the day that you don't have salt or that you want to experiment with a different type of salt, you can make a rational and informed choice. And that's simply not true for the just do this protocol approach. And uh, that's actually something I really appreciate about Inside Tracker as well. I mean, I'm not shy about the fact. In fact, I'm proud about the fact that you guys are a sponsor of the podcast and it's a really wonderful relationship. Um, I'm a big believer in getting blood work done because I like data, right? I haven't been getting blood work done for a long time. And I think that Inside Tracker does a terrific job of giving you a rationale for why you might want to consider doing more of this or less of that, ingesting more of this or less of that, as opposed to just telling you to do it, which, as we know, never works. Didn't yeah. work when we were children, and it doesn't work when we're adults, especially it doesn't work when we're adults. Nobody wants yeah. to be told what to do. People are who want answers want to be told what they might do and why, and that way they, you really empower people to, to make good decisions.
3: Yeah, 100% agree. Uh, knowledge is a power, and uh, if you don't know, you might follow it for a day or two, and then you fall off. But if you know that it's really bad for you or really good for you, you will do the best to follow it. And uh, I 100% appreciate what you said, thank you.
2: Yeah, I think that analogy of learning how to adjust a recipe is a great one of why you should understand like what everything adds. Something else you just said about trying to dig really deep and not go on tangents everything you've said so far, I've wanted to pop in and ask 37,000 questions and lead <laughs> us in different directions. Now is the time to do that. So I'm excited to start getting into some of these specific things. Something that has been really gaining in popularity a lot over maybe the past five or so years, I feel like is really the connection between the gut and the brain, ways to improve your microbiome, influences on cognition and vice versa. Could you talk us through some of the research or some of the information that's out there on that connection? And if people are able to improve their cognition or the brain by what's going on in their gut?
0: Yeah. So the gut-brain interaction is a really interesting one. Just to first, very briefly, you know, what is the gut-brain system? It's, um, I think because it's become more popular recently, I think there's this idea that like, a new brain was discovered in our gut. And and I wanna be fair to the hundred year history of neuroscience that there's no brain in our gut and it was not just discovered. It's long been known that there are neurons in the gut that send connections up to the brain and that our brain sends connections down to our gut. It's a loop and it goes both ways, okay? So it's a two-way highway going north and south. And basically that it consists of neurons, nerve cells, and the communication between the brain and body or I should say the body and brain is always according to two factors, mechanical and chemical. Okay. So when your heart beats faster, it sends a signal to your brain. That's a mechanical signal. Now it's translated the language of the nervous system, the syllables and phrases of the nervous system are always electricity, but a mechanical change. For instance, if your stomach is very full, you feel that the reason you feel that is because you have neurons in your gut that send signals to your brain. It's not that you just know it. It's just, you feel that and that's mechanical. However, if you eat something that um, makes your gut too acidic or throws off the chemistry of your gut, there are chemical signals. Let's say you eat something that makes you sick. There are signals that arrive via a nerve pathway that will signal the fever area of your brain to heat up your body and try and kill that thing. Okay. So we've long known that these pathways exist. These are not new ideas. What's new is this idea that there are certain things that we can do that we can use the gut as a control point, as a kind of lever to control elements within the brain. And there are really two ways that that's carried out. One is through the so-called gut microbiome. And we'll talk about that second, but the more powerful, or I should say equally powerful, forgive me, gut microbiome bionistas the equally powerful way is via pathways where you have neurons in your gut, literally in the gut endothelium. So you have your stomach, You have your intestines and along there you have neurons and those neurons are sensing things in your gut. Now they don't sense them. Like you sense things emotionally. They wait until certain things bind to them. And then if they bind to them, they're activated and they send a signal up to your brain. So one of the most important discoveries in this area was actually by a guy named Diego Borges out at Duke university, a really terrific scientist. He and his group discovered a set of neurons that bind to they are bound by they have parking slots for essentially three kinds of nutrients from food the first are fatty acids so fats lipids the second are amino acids so when you eat proteins of any kind they're broken down into amino acids of different kinds they bind amino acids essentially and then the third is sugars and if these neurons see or capture any of those substances They send electrical signals to the brain subconsciously, okay? And so when they send those signals, those signals arrive in brain centers that deploy the release of a molecule called dopamine. Dopamine is a neuromodulator that most people think makes you feel good, but that's not what dopamine does. What dopamine does is it creates a sort of an action state in the brain and body that makes you seek more of whatever it is that triggered the release of dopamine. It's a molecule of motivation and craving, not of satiety and pleasure. That's an important kind of misconception. So what this means and what Diego's group has shown is that when we ingest sugars, even if you numb the mouth, so you can't taste those sugars, you actually crave more sugar independent of the taste because these neurons are triggering the release of dopamine. Likewise, however, for fatty acids and amino acids. So what this tells us is that the so-called hidden sugars that are in a lot of foods, are actually disrupting the way that our brain craves and seeks out food. The other thing that's interesting is that it, it tells us that what our gut is really craving, craving in the air quotes, are amino acids and fatty acids. You know, there is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. And to be clear, I eat carbohydrates. I'm not keto or pure carnivore or anything like that. So I'm not anti-carbohydrate by any stretch. But what has been shown again and again is that humans will essentially eat until they get their ration of amino acids and fatty acids. And this has important implications for the regulation of obesity, for regulation of appetite, as it relates to obesity and their downstream impact on metabolic disorders. So that's one aspect. And if people want to know what the nerve pathway is for you aficionados out there, it's actually a subdivision of the vagus nerve that performs this role. The vagus nerve has motor and sensory pathways. And this is a sensory pathway that goes from the gut to a little cluster of neurons called the nodose ganglion, which sits right behind your ear. You have one on each side. They actually do different things on each side, which is kind of cool. And then they eventually cause the release of dopamine. So that also just raises an important point, which is that we often hear about the vagus nerve as this calming system in the body. It'll calm you down. That is completely wrong. It's just wrong. I don't know why that got started or why that persisted. The vagus is a multi-dimensional pathway of sensory and motor function. And actually, experimentally in a lab, when we want to wake up a person or a human, it's actually an, a treatment for depression to that can increase arousal and alertness. You turn on the vagus. So somehow this whole thing about maybe it's because the vagus is in the so-called parasympathetic division of the nervous system. People thought this, but. I don't know where that got started. Anyway, so that's chemical signaling. Remember we said there were two ways, mechanical and chemical. That's chemical signaling between what you eat, fatty acids, amino acids, and sugars. And the brain then deploys more chemicals to make you seek more of these things. Then there's the gut microbiome. The pathway I just described often gets confused with the gut microbiome and vice versa. And the gut microbiome has been recognized for some years now. It's a little bit more of a recent discovery, which is that basically you have colonies of microbiota living in your gut. Different microbiota at different locations along the gut because the acidity varies tremendously along the, from the esophagus down to the intestines. And these gut microbiota don't care about you. They're not interested in your health or in killing you. They really are just there because there's a proper pH and environment for them to thrive. They want nutrients and they want to thrive. They don't necessarily have a mind or a brain, but that's their goal. Like any organism is to make more of itself and to persist until it doesn't. So the gut microbiome adjusts the several things. It can adjust the function of the brain through two mechanisms. People often say, oh, there's more serotonin in your gut than there is in your brain. And therefore all the the effects of mood and stuff are from the gut. Also not true. The serotonin in your brain that regulates your mood comes from a little cluster of neurons in the back called the raphe nucleus not from the serotonin in your gut. But the serotonin in your gut plays other important roles, gut motility and so forth. The The gut microbiome's major role is modulatory and indirect on the brain. There are other roles, but its major role is modulatory and indirect. What do I mean? Well, something can mediate a process or it can modulate a process. It's worth visiting this for a second. Mediating a process would be, let's say I my prefrontal cortex, the front area of my brain, right behind my forehead, basically... It mediates attention and focus. Now, a fire alarm can go off in my home and change my level of attention and focus, but it doesn't mediate it, it just modulated it, right? In other words, if I turn it off, whenever it's off, doesn't mean that my focus goes up, right? So there's causal and there's correlated and there's mediated and there's modulated. And I think these are important distinctions that people need to understand. The gut microbiome is modulating the way the brain works. It's not mediating the way the brain works in the same way that the other pathway that I talked about with the nodos, ganglion and these neurons that sense nutrients are. So there's very good evidence now that the gut microbiome is supported by the ingestion of particular foods. There's a recent paper published in the journal Cell by my upstairs neighbor in my, the same building I work in at Stanford. The laboratory is the Sonnenberg laboratory. So I take zero credit for these results. Um, I had nothing to do with them aside from being located downstairs from where the results were collected. And so the result is basically that th- this was done in humans and they had humans ingest a diet that included two to four servings of fermented foods per day, low sugar fermented foods. So these were like kimchi, sauerkraut, natto, low sugar kombuchas, these sorts of things. And compared that to a diet that included greater number of servings of fiber, dietary fiber which we're all told is really good for us. And then they evaluated through a lot of detailed molecular explorations, inflammatory markers, pro-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory markers, among other things. What they discovered was that the fermented foods contributed to gut microbiota diversity. So increased the diversity of gut microbiota and led to really significant increases in anti-inflammatory markers and decreases in inflammatory markers, things like IL6, interleukin 6, things like tumor necrosis factor alpha, TNF alpha, some of the interferons, these kinds of things, C reactive protein, those went down. The anti-inflammatory markers went up. And conversely and somewhat surprisingly, the ferment the excuse me, the fiber enhanced diet actually did not do that or did the opposite in some cases. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't ingest any fiber. What it means is that fermented foods are definitely a good thing for the gut microbiome, something that's been known for for centuries, really, but that hasn't had a ton of really solid scientific evidence. And it also means that overemphasizing fiber might, for purposes of adjusting the inflammatome, as it's called, everything's a tome now, right? You got genome, you got connectome, you got inflammatome, you got the ohm-ohm, you know, everything's an ohm. So the inflammatome, uh, is positively impacted by fermented foods but not fibrous foods. So for those of you that enjoy fibrous foods, by all means, do that. I think that there are other benefits. but what so what's happening here? So the gut microbiome, by ingesting these foods, you're changing the alkalinity or the acidity of certain compartments within the gut that allow certain gut microbiota to flourish and others to not flourish. We'll talk about the bad ones and where they flourish, and thereby adjusting down certain inflammatory markers increasing anti-inflammatory markers, and thereby modulating the way that brain circuitry works. But this is distinctly different than a direct effect between gut and brain, right? This is a slow modulatory kind of background. So this is how sleep will improve things like creativity and focus and performance and physical healing and all sorts of things, but it's not doing it directly in every case. A lot of times it's just adjusting systems in the body that allow those things to happen. Okay. So if the listeners take away nothing else from what I've said today, this difference between mediating things and modulating things is important. Now, just because something modulates something doesn't mean that it's a small effect. It can be a major effect. And in this case of this study, it was. So there are other effects of the gut microbiome. I mean, there are these incredible studies that show that if you, they sound kind of gross to talk about, but you talk about fecal transplants, where you actually take the gut microbiota from one animal or person, this has been done, and put them into the gut of an obese person or mouse, and they lose weight. Now, the reason that is an interesting result from the standpoint of, of neuroscience is that ultimately the centers that, of the brain and body that control appetite are in the hypothalamus, not in the gut. So that tells you right there that something's changing in the body that modulates... Appetite and feeding. It's not just that they could consume the same diet they did before. And Diego Borges tells a really wonderful story about a woman who was very, very overweight, who she actually had gastric bypass surgery in order to deal with this because it was becoming an acute medical issue. And prior to her surgery, she was diabetic. And the way he describes it is she would get physically nauseous at the thought of egg yolks, in particular runny egg yolks. After her surgery without any other explanation, she craved egg yolks. She craved fatty acids. She thought of them as egg yolks, not fatty acids, but she craved them intensely and really loves them and delights in consuming them. So there's this cool and somewhat mysterious interplay between gut and brain, but hopefully some of that paints a little bit more detail, a little bit of mechanism. And there's a lot more there. Uh, I realize for the aficionados, you know, they're probably saying, well, what about this study? One thing that I really emphasize on the podcast and I try and do is it's possible to be accurate, but not exhaustive. So I realize I'm leaving out a lot of things, but otherwise, all I could say is that every podcast, if I included everything, it would cure insomnia. It would put everybody to sleep, but it would have (laughs) no other.
2: (laughs) That's a good segue, I think, into Gil. uh, I know you have a question about sleep on here too.
3: So Andrew, you uh, we know very well that sleep is so important and influence so many different pathway and the maybe it's the best lifestyle change that we can do in order to live longer, better life. Can you talk a bit about it? What sleep influence and what can we do in order to improve our sleep?
0: Yeah. So uh, I want to tip my hat to the great Matt Walker, who wrote this incredible book, Why We Sleep, which convinced everybody that sleep is really important. And, And I think I do want to acknowledge him. And he has a new podcast out, the Matt Walker podcast, which is really superb talking about sleep. I want to acknowledge him for because First of all, he's done beautiful work in this area. Second of all, prior to that book, I don't think people really internalized how vital sleep was. I mean, we'd hear about it, but it was this idea like, let's avoid this thing. Sleep at a very basic level, it consists of repeated 90 minute cycles. So it has an art- internal architecture early in the night, slow wave sleep or deep sleep predominates later in the night. REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, where the eyes are actually darting around and your body is paralyzed, predominates. Slow wave sleep dreams are, are I should say the dreams associated with slow wave sleep tend to be a little less emotionally laden. The ones associated with REM sleep tend to be more emotionally laden, act as sort of a therapy for ourselves, believe it or not, because during REM sleep, you're paralyzed, but also your body and brain can't deploy adrenaline. And so you 're experiencing things in a very emotional way, but without the opportunity to feel the intense physiological sort of byproducts of those intense feelings. If you ever wake up from a REM dream, your heart starts beating very, very fast often because there 's a little bit of a threading through of that dream into the wake state so um, you know that the brain is is doing therapy for you it 's during sleep it's early in the night there's growth hormone released that is involved in tissue repair and metabolism, protein synthesis, and so forth. Um, This is why wounds heal slower when you're not sleeping. You don't get over illnesses when you're not sleeping. Perhaps the most important thing for sake of the neuroscience community and those thinking about it is that neuroplasticity, the actual rewiring of connections in the brain occurs during sleep. The triggers are set during wakefulness, but uh, when you concentrate, you try and learn or something happens, but the actual rewiring occurs in sleep. That's been demonstrated many times in particular during REM sleep. So many, many benefits of sleep. I think it's safe to say that everything gets better when you're getting ample quality sleep and ample will vary from person to person. And uh, everything gets worse when you're not emotional reactivity, wound healing, cancer outcomes, bad decisions, everything gets worse when you're not sleeping. We know this. So a big focus of my lab and my public education efforts is, have been around how to improve sleep how to get better at falling asleep when you want to and sleeping through the night, and if you wake up, getting back to sleep. And um, there are a number of different ways to do that, but there are sort of three foundational steps that everyone can take. First of all is when you fall asleep is basically 16 hours after you get bright sunlight in your eyes in the morning. And if you don't get outside and get sunlight in your eyes in the morning, you're severely hindering your sleep quality. And this has to do with specialized sets of neurons in the eye called the melanopsin intrinsically photosensitive ganglion cells that send signals to your hypothalamus and start a timer basically saying it's daytime, it's daytime, but that timer trickles down. And then you'll eventually want to go to sleep about 12 to 16 hours later. So as a pure action step, get outside, even if it's cloudy, and get sunlight in your eyes. If you wear contacts or eyeglasses, you're okay. That's not a problem, but don't wear sunglasses, provided you can do that safely, at least for this morning period. How long? Well, depends. Anywhere from two to 30 minutes, depending on how bright it is. And I will say that there's far more photons, light energy coming through cloud cover than there is coming from an artificial light. So if you think it's very bright indoors, you're wrong. It's just concentrated. And so it seems that way. Um, looking at the sunlight through a window will not suffice. It filters out too much of the wavelengths that you want. Wearing blue blockers is absolutely terrible, terrible idea, terrible idea for setting your circadian clock in the ways that I'm describing blue blockers. If you're going to wear them should be worn in the evening. Um, but even then, we'll only protect you against certain things. Um, and I will talk about the evening light exposure. So get sunlight in your eyes early in the day. If you wake up before the sun comes out, don't worry about it. Just wait till the sun comes out. Get outside. Take your coffee outside, et cetera. Very important to do this. Early in the day, you require a lot of light to wake up the system. There are a number of other positive effects that come with doing this.
3: Can you specify exactly what is early in the day? Like how many hours before, after you woke up?
0: Yeah, so everyone's waking up different times, everyone's at different latitudes and everybody's got slightly different sensitivities to light. So it gets a little tricky, but essentially the strongest activation signal for this clock system to work in the proper way is low solar angle sunlight, which means when the sun is low in the sky. And when the sun is low in the sky, there's a particular contrast system that's set up between yellow and blue wavelengths of light that trigger activation of these neurons, which trigger activation of the clock. So if you're waking up at 11 a.m., you want to get outside and see that sunlight, but the sun is going to be near overhead at that point. Not nearly as efficient as when you get sun early in the day. Now, you don't need to see it right as it crosses the horizon. If you can, great. But low solar angle. So within an hour or so of waking, I'm assuming that most people are waking up somewhere between 5 a.m. and 8 a.m. As a general rule of thumb, shift work is a totally different issue. If you're a shift worker or you're jet lagged, If you're jet lagged coming back from Europe to the US and you look at the sunset, you're basically looking at what your brain thinks is morning in Italy and you're waking yourself up. You're going to be up all night or waking up in the middle of the night. If you're interested in jet lag and shift work, I did an episode of this on my podcast. You can find it at hubermanlab.com. Just go to jet lag shift work. You have to plug in some specific features. There's no one simple fix for jet lag and shift work. Because everyone's traveling in different directions and coming from different time zones and three hour shifts and 12 hour shifts. But for most people waking up between five and 8 a.m., get outside within an hour, ideally within half hour of waking, spend 10 to 30 minutes outside and get that sunlight and don't wear sunglasses when you do it, unless you have like really severe macular degeneration or something, and you're worried about sunlight exposure, it should be fine. A good rule of thumb with light is never look at a light so bright that it's painful to look at. That's a signal that it's too bright. So you don't have to stare directly at the sun either. It's indirect, but you don't want to be in a shadow or, you know, it's sort of like if you have a flashlight, you flash it on the ground. It's less bright than if you shine in your eye. So all this stuff is going to impact the times, but two minutes to 30 minutes should be great. If you're on a snow field, it's a bright day. One minute. If you're in a hazy you know boston fall morning then you know overcast morning then 30 minutes so that's important And then the other thing is to really avoid bright light exposure between the hours of 10 p.m and 4 a.m and you don't have to be neurotic about this but you really want to adjust down the intensity of screens and the intensity of lamps and things because it's a little bit of a diabolical situation that the sensitivity of these cells in the eye is very low early in the day so you need a lot of light to stimulate them which is what you want And then late in the day, the sensitivity is very high. And so you only need a little bit of light from artificial light to wake up your clock and light suppresses melatonin. Melatonin is the hormone that promotes the transition to sleep. It's not what keeps you asleep, but it's what promotes the transition to sleep. So in the evening, you got a lot of bright lights on or you're looking at your screen up close and it's bright, you're shutting down your melatonin production. You're messing up your sleep for sure. So use as little light as you need in order to function uh, safely, and all these systems are pretty slow, so if you miss a day of sunlight exposure or you get a lot of light in your eyes one night, just try and do better the next day and night right you don 't have to be totally neurotic about it, and the shift workers are probably saying, "Well, this is really bad i mean i 'm up all night and and yeah, it 's really bad. I mean lifespan for shift workers is worse, metabolic symptoms, and now we need shift workers they perform an essential role, and we 're very grateful for that. One thing I will just say for shift workers is if you're going to do shift work, try and stay on the same schedule for two weeks at a time, at least one of the worst things is to do the swing shift where you're shifting back and forth every three days that causes dramatic health issues. And one of the most immediate ones is that people, we've all had this when we travel, you get gut disturbances. Some people it's mild, some people it's severe because it's you actually have a clock in your liver that's involved in protein synthesis, et cetera. We talked about that clock earlier for protein synthesis. So uh, take some time for those things to shift. So avoid bright light in the middle of the night. It's been shown to suppress activation of the dopamine circuitry, lead to pseudo depressive symptoms. I mean, and then for people who have mental health issues or know people who do, I mean, every mental health disorder is made worse by disturbances in sleep and made better somewhat um, in some cases like seasonal affective disorder which is uh, winter depression, it's actually can be greatly assisted by getting light at the appropriate times and avoiding re- light at the wrong times. So um, that's essential. And then if you are the sort of person who works on your computer late at night, or you are gonna watch Netflix or something, uh, just dim the screen, but get, watching the sun set in the evening actually will adjust the sensitivity of your retina such that late night viewing of light isn't quite as bad it's sort of an inoculation against, I call it the Netflix inoculation. So you you get a little bit of protection from that. And that is because your system is getting multiple signals about time of day. And the body and brain don't do well when it doesn't know when it is in time, it really starts to get messed up. And um, on a very kind of dark note, no pun intended at all, the, you know, most suicides are associated with a with sleep if you look historically at suicides or suicide attempts, there are almost always sleep disturbances that precede those. And so, you know, depressed people and people who are family members of depressed people know that when sleep starts going off, that's a signal um, that things could be getting worse. So basically get that morning light, get the evening light. And then of course there are all the, there. I talk a lot about these on the podcast and also there's a whole kit of tools for relaxing yourself to help you aid transition to sleep. Um, something called non-sleep deep rest or NSDR. These are protocols. I can offer one that's a a zero cost tool that's based on really quality research done at Stanford School of Medicine by my colleague, David Spiegel, which is reverie, R-E-V-E-R-I.com. It's an Android and Apple app. It's a self-hypnosis that for focus, for sleep issues, for anxiety, for pain a lot of people hear hypnosis and they get kind of freaked out um this is self-hypnosis it's a non-sleep deep rest type protocol you train the neural circuits of the brain to relax so if you wake up in the middle of the night very normal thing to do wake you know maybe you had too many fluids before you go to sleep you wake up use the bathroom in the middle of the night and then people have a hard time getting back to sleep they have a disturbing dream they wake up they have a hard time getting back to sleep things like the reverie app sleep script can help you totally zero cost and you're really teaching your nervous system to calm down and then there's the whole kit of supplements and things like that, and how to eat in order to promote sleep. I and mean, we could do several hours on this, but um, but those are really the core things.
3: That was great. Yeah, I, I'm saying that was great, and I agree with you. We can talk about it until tomorrow. So let's let's move to the next subject, Ashley.
0: Sure.
2: And honestly, a lot of the questions that we wanted to ask, I think you know, individuals could find so much detail on your podcast. So you know, about jet lag and cortisol,
0: melatonin. Yeah. Yeah, everything is organized at hubermanlab.com. You can see the titles, everything is timestamped and everything is captioned in English and Spanish. We'd like to expand to other languages soon. So, you know, it's not a perfect inventory, but it could get you most of the way there. A little bit of digging and you should be able to find what you need. You can also just put into the search function, like if you're interested in magnesium and sleep, you can just put magnesium and it'll bring up all the relevant timestamps.
2: Awesome. Well, As a a way to wrap up, what is one decision that you could share with our listeners that you do every single day based on nutrition or longevity? You already gave us a good one of shifting that fasting window up earlier into the day. But is there another thing that you intentionally do that you could share as a tip to improve your overall health and longevity?
0: Gosh, if it had to be one, I would say the morning sunlight and getting, if you can combine that with a walk in the morning, that's going to be the one that's really going to move the needle the most. I'll take the liberty of just listing off in bullet point fashion. I think the things that really have made the biggest difference for me are morning sunlight with a walk every day or most every day. Sometimes you can't, things happen. That's one really powerful tool for our brain and body. The other one would be one way or another, get sufficient uh, essential fatty acids. The literature really show that you need to get more than a thousand milligrams per day of EPA, not just fish oil or omega-3s, but the EPA form anywhere from one to two grams. So a thousand, 2000 milligrams. I mean, I think the data are pretty clear now. There, there have been enough meta-analyses to point to the advantages for heart health. I know there's some debate there a little bit, but Certainly for depression and offsetting depression and improving mood, that's uh, all the Scandinavians will say, yeah, we told you (laughs) they take a shot of cod liver oil. It sounds terrible, sounds disgusting, but that's terrific for overall mood and well-being and probably hopefully for heart health as well. And uh, you can get it from foods. You can get it from non-fish sources. If you're not into eating fish for whatever reason, you can supplement or get it from diet. That would be the second one. The third one would be take care of that gut microbiome. So get those fermented foods. They're not obvious food choices for most people. You know, a few of us reach for sauerkraut because it's like the most delicious thing in the fridge. (laughs) So it's kind of a medicine in my mind. (laughs) Uh, Some of it tastes good, but that would be the third. And then the fourth and fifth would be, I think we all know, You need 150 to 180 minutes of zone two cardio type work per week to maintain your health. I don't think anyone should, we could go get into the details about what and how and what that looks like. And, but it's like, it means mellow-ish cardio where you can just barely hold a conversation, 150, to 180 minutes a week. And then we should all be doing some sort of resistance training, minimum of five sets per week per muscle group to maintain. And, you know, you don't have to go crazy and become a bodybuilder or, um, that's just to maintain what you have. And I think it's because I would say, unlike a lot of organs of the body, the gut and muscle are the strongest signals, the strongest immediate signals, I should say to the brain of what your current health status is. And then the rest kind of follows suit. And so I don't want to downplay the importance of any other organs. They're all important, obviously. Uh, you wouldn't want to part ways with any of them, except maybe your appendix. But those are the, really the things that I think can, if people do one or two or all five of those, you're going to experience a substantial increase in health and well-being and cognitive function. And th- these are not small effects. So you said one, I said five, but- That's great.
3: That's okay. We'll take five. Yeah. Andrew, <laughs> this uh, podcast is longevity by design. So uh, we like to ask our guests, what is uh, in their uh, estimate, what is the limit of the longevity? How long can we live, let's say, in 10 or 20 years?
0: What is the barrier? So Sinclair tells me that I should really be pushing this number out. So, well, I have theories about this. Can I just speculate? Of course. Okay. So speculation, not Data, but speculation. I think there's important information about how fast we are aging, about the speed at which we enter and transition through puberty. Now, here's the reason. And as a developmental neurobiologist, I started off in that really. Development doesn't stop. Like you don't develop and then you're an adult. That's a cultural thing that we say that. Development is a progression, right? The lifespan is an arc. Okay. So but there are particular portions within that arc that aging is clearly occurring faster, and puberty is the mo- is the fastest rate of aging that we go through at, at any point in our lifespan. And so I think it'd be fun to look at this and correlate it with some of the data from uh, Inside Tracker on uh, some of the genetic data, the various aspects that address cellular age as opposed to just chronological age. But we all knew kids that. Went home for a summer in middle school, came back, and that kid looked completely different. Right? <laughs> and we know people that continue to acquire secondary sex characteristics. So the, these are different in the different sexes, of course, but um, across the lifespan, as opposed to they complete development, they kind of, and then they're, just their phenotype actually looks kind of similar, but then they just, and then they age, right? So I think that there's a window into how fast we're aging by virtue of how quickly we enter and go, th- not how early but how quickly we enter and transition through puberty. Okay. And I've talked to David Sinclair about this and he didn't laugh me out of the room with it, but so that's maybe something to just think about. So I think for some people, we know that they go through puberty very slowly. And in fact, and I do not recommend this one of the, I mean, there've been groups over the years that have tried to extend lifespan through things like castration and ovarectomy, right? Through hysterectomy and ovarectomy. not something I'm suggesting, but it's well known that the, Molecules of the body that are associated with vitality and reproduction. We like to think of them as anti aging, but actually they are pro aging, right? And, you know, Eastern medicine has these interesting ideas about chi and energy and not too much. You want it, but not too much because you can burn the systems of the body down. So there's a lot of interesting things that I'm sure will boil down to mechanisms of dopamine and inflammation. And so it's kind of fun to speculate about these things. I think we'll eventually get to some hard facts about it. But this is all to say that. I think if one instills a sense of balance in their drive and rest in their relationship between feast and famine, literally between eating and fasting, if one establishes that a regular rhythm, then I think that pushing out the age of what we currently think of as maximum age is somewhere between what, how old are people living to be now? 80, 90. Is that typical? Yeah. What it is. Yeah. 80. Yeah. I think in the next 10, 20 years, we're probably looking at people, living to be maybe that number shifts to 9000. There're some centenarians that are really still quite there. You don't see people who are 90 and 100 running marathons too often though. So it's going to take some other augmentation. And the reason I raise all this stuff about puberty and hormones is what I think would be really cool would be to find the pathways that translate vitality into aging and adjust those pathways so that the vitality can be preserved without the pro-aging effects of things like growth hormone, um, testosterone, and estrogen, all of which age cells faster, right? And so again, I'm not anti these hormones. They're wonderful. And growth hormone is a powerful thing, but we know that people who take growth hormone, probably, I'm going to get some heat for this, but probably are shortening their life because they're increasing the size of, of organs and accelerating tumor growth, lingering little cell growths and and things of that sort because it's growth hormone. So I think that's an exciting area for the future. And the mental side is also important. I mean, brain is a very unique organ because it adjusts homeostasis. You know, we we hear all the time about homeostasis, everything. The body wants homeostasis, completely ignores the role of the brain. Think about hypertension. No one wants cardiac hypertension, but if you're stressed, the brain will keep your heart beating faster than it would otherwise. If you're relaxed, they'll do the opposite. So the phrase that's actually more relevant is allostasis, which is this adaptive home- relationship to homeostasis. And, and what this means is that how we conceptualize our health is going to turn out to be very important. How we conceptualize the practices of health are going to be important. And I'll, with that, I'll just leave you with one study, which is really cool, that my colleague Bob Sapolsky told me about. If you put a rat or a mouse on a, in a cage and you offer it a running wheel, And it runs a lot because they like to run. What you find is that all sorts of endothelial cells, you know, the cells that make up the blood vessels, they get healthier and blood pressure goes down. A lot of good cortisol goes down. A lot of good things happen. But if there's a rat in a cage next door that's tethered to that rat in the sense that it lives in that wheel and whenever the first rat runs, it has to run too. So it's getting the equivalent amount of running, but it's forced to do it everything gets worse than had it done no exercise at all. Well, so that's not homeostasis. That's allostasis. Yeah. That tells you that the conditions and the mindset matter. Now, of course, the rat doesn't know why it's happening. It just knows it's being forced. Yeah. So this is a, a call to uh, embrace the steps with a smile and <laughs> the health <laughs> steps with a smile. You'd be a lot better off. That's great.
2: Awesome. Well, we literally could sit here and talk for a, the rest of the day but i will stop us there thank you so much for being here dr no, human it was we only got to the surface of a couple of things i'm excited to go binge listen to every single one of your episodes
0: <laughs> Thanks. yeah they're happy to hop on again anytime i love what you guys are doing and getting people their data and about what's going on under the hood and giving them action points to make the most of those data
2: Awesome. Thank you. And we look forward to exploring the research in the field of longevity each week with all of you and other leading scientists. For more information, please go to www.insidetracker.com/podcast.
1: Thanks for listening to Longevity by Design. Please subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube. Longevity by Design is powered by Inside Tracker a personalized health optimization platform that helps people improve their lives by improving their bodies from the inside out using personalized science-backed recommendations for nutrition, supplements, and lifestyle changes. To learn more, visit insidetracker.com slash podcast.